back to one more thing. This is a Wednesday and it's officially my summer. Welcome. Welcome all. I don't know why I said welcome because you're probably not joining me yet on your summer. Maybe you have one more day of class. Maybe you have already been off for a couple of weeks because you're a college student and you guys get off in like May, early May, late April sometimes. I don't even know what the college schedule is anymore. I just remember that baseball season went way past the end of the school year. So if you made it all the way to the College World Series, you were definitely playing when no one else was on campus. It was a ghost town, which was always weird because you felt like you always showed up when no one was there, and then you left when no one was there, and in the middle, people were there. Something like that. So today, the topic on my mind is mental health. And I've been doing a lot of research lately, mostly because of my own pursuit of education and how I think that I should better myself as a teacher and things that I think will help my students learn so that they're not just doing it out of tradition or whatever was the culture of education, but rather out of some form of scientific look at how we learn and the effect of learning and the way that we piece information together in order to synthesize and create more critical thinking. And in the process, I stumbled over an article that was written in an effort to kind of try to explain how our brain works and the way that education fits into that process. And to sum the article up into something really short and simple, essentially learning has everything to do with a person's cognitive load And cognitive load has to do with how we process information or new information and try to match it with the information that we already have. One of the things that I found extremely interesting about this is that we cannot actually retain new information if we don't have a framework or evidence or facts or just knowledge that lays the groundwork to create that new information. And I actually see this in my own children. Uh, When I'm reading to my kids, my daughter's one and a half. And so the books that I read with her are random books about, you know, the hundred animals. And so you go page by page by page with themed pages of different animals. And she's one and a half and can already do about 95% of the animals in there. You say, Ruby, where's the ostrich? She points. Ruby, where's the tiger? She points. Ruby, where's the lion? She points. Now, she will every once in a while mix up a lion and a tiger, mostly because when I say lion and she points at the lion, I'll go, rawr, and she goes, rawr. And so she sometimes will confuse the two that have similar sounds that they make. And that is perfectly fine, right? It's a confusing thing for most people to try to separate the fact that animals might have similar sounds. And obviously, those of us humans that are trying to copy animal sounds are not doing it at the perfect pitch and tone. So yes, she's going to make some small mistakes. But the thing about it is when you look at how kids learn, they learn through repetition. And that repetition builds a process for them to then add knowledge to what they already know, and then synthesize that so that they can learn more. 
which is why in school we do, and I think it was well-founded that in school you do have to somewhat drill and kill for a lot of the basic stuff so that you actually can synthesize knowledge and create creatively, create critical thinking about a complex issue. And it's not like we would go and throw a complex issue at a new learner. You would never do that. It, it wouldn't make any sense. And what the brain research says is that if you did do that, that the learner would actually have no chance in actually learning or obtaining that knowledge long term. They would not be able to actually make the memory connection because there was no framework or foundation for the new knowledge to be built on. And that makes perfect sense. And so I started thinking more about this stuff in the context of our society and mental health and how we have created issues, I think, within our own society of our own doing that, quite honestly, I'm not sure what the answer is to, but this is what I was thinking currently. You know, if you think back to psychology, which, you know, my, my knowledge of psychology comes from more from a history standpoint. And so I know the basics of Freud and I know his concepts that essentially tried to kind of map the brain. And I'm sure there's far more detailed structures that, you know, somebody could tell me and, and show me as, as being more accurate. But let's just quickly walk down a road of Freud and, and see where I'm going. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of give you more of a philosophical concepts today on mental health and why I think they're on the rise. So with Freud, he believed that the brain was essentially divided up into uh, three major processes. Um, it, you had the, the id, the ego, and the super ego. The id was the section of your brain that essentially keeps you alive. It is your pleasure-seeking pre, pre, uh, pleasure principle, which gives you the ability to know that, hey, I'm hungry, I must find food. You know, your basic human instincts that give us all the opportunity to have a full life because we actually are feeding ourselves and not just dying through attrition, right? And so you have the pleasure-seeking principle, which obviously the id is completely amoral. It doesn't have a sense of what morality is because its only function is essentially to keep you alive. And so it doesn't make moral judgments for you. It only makes survival judgments for you. And so wrapped up in the id is all sexual desires and all that other kind of stuff because all of that together is a function of survival. Now, the ego is kind of the way that we have created, in a way, a morality for ourselves. And the ego is a lot like our conscience. So the ego is the one, and, and you know, I, in class, when I teach about Freud, I always use the uh, Homer Simpson devil versus angel uh, idea, where you basically have the devil on one side and the angel on the other side. And the angel is essentially your ego. And the devil is essentially your id and your de the devil is telling you to do all of the things that you actually want and telling you want you want them even though you're not sure you actually want them, etc, cetera, etc, cetera, right? And then on the other side, the angel is sitting there going, no, those are going to create negative consequences for us. Maybe we shouldn't do those things, right? So you have this balance. And then Freud goes on to say the third major function that the brain deals with is the superego. And that is actually more cultural conditioning more than anything else. So from the time you were a small child all the way up 
until you're an adult, you are going through the process of what cultural anthropologists would call social norms, uh, kind of the way that all of us over time have created certain things within our own societies, our own worldviews, our own norms that are normal. And so that super ego is kind of the thing that we're in America. We have this real idea or concept of personal space. We all kind of think that we actually are entitled to personal space. So when you get on a bus or you get on the ferry to San Francisco or you go something like that, you would never expect someone to sit so close to you that they feel like you're on, they're on your lap. You would think that would be odd unless you of course knew them. And then it still might be odd, but less odd, right? There would be a degree of oddness in that situation. But in other countries, you might be on a bus filled with so many people that it is filled to the rafters with individuals, and that social norm is never going to actually be an option. And so the superego is kind of how we process the world based on what society deems as normal. And so anyway, our, that was Freud's basic construction of the brain, and, and Freud actually said, and the last thing your brain has to deal with is the external world. So it has to actually deal with the id, the ego, and the superego, and at the same time process the fact that we're actually just living our lives and having to consistently process the external world through our eyes and then make decisions on how we're going to deal with the external world. And so in Freud's mind, the reason why we have mental break or anxiety or things that would be considered today mental health issues, many of them stem from those collisions of multiple masters where you have multiple things telling us what we should do on a consistent basis. And yet we have to keep trying to deal with those things. And so at times the brain goes through a break and can't handle it. And so it gets too much built up and then has some form of uh, issue. Now, today, we've added, in my opinion, a fifth problem. And that is essentially the phone or social media or essentially the connectedness of the Internet. And you might say, well, the Internet has done so many good things for us. And yes, it has. But the negative consequences of technology, in my opinion, is almost like adding an entirely fifth element to our brains and having to deal with it. Because if you look at how we actually encounter people today, most of our encounters are no longer in the physical world, but actually in a separate sphere through this little three-inch box called the phone. And we are now on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, and we are interacting in a completely different realm that is not the external world because we've actually avoided the external world. It's not the id, the ego, and the superego. It's actually a fifth thing, which in my opinion is actually the most multidimensional of them as well. And so I would say mental health is going to only get worse until we start realizing that we have to find ways to back away from the constant bombardment of this fifth element, we'll call it the connectedness of the internet. Because think about it like this, if you're someone going through an average day today, you will probably look at your phone over 100 times. Now, without your phone, when your phone didn't exist, 
And I know when I was a child, I never even dreamed of having a phone outside of the house. First of all, I wouldn't have wanted it. I actually enjoyed going outside and playing by myself and actually being alone. But now, sometimes I wouldn't even dream about going outside without my phone. And that's terrible. I hate that. But at the same time, I feel like I'm almost connected to it, like it's a chain, ball and chain in, in, at certain times. And I admire so many times when I see someone say, you know, I need to take a break from Facebook or I need to take a break from this. I think we all need to take a break here and there from our external connectivity, my cat agrees. And I think that the biggest issue we're going to have is, again, we're having, say you have a hundred times that you look at your phone in a day. And it might be more than that. It might be less. It might be more than that. And on certain days, maybe you're really busy and it's not very much, but then you spend a lot of time on your phone at the end of the day or something like that. How many connections are you making with other humans that you would not have made otherwise? And if it's more than, I don't know, two, three, four, five times the amount that you would make if you just remove the cell phone from you, then you can only from there understand that your brain is now dealing with circumstances it's never had to deal with in the scope of human history. Our brain is now having to deal with a fifth element that is quite honestly bombarding it with an almost emotionless information. Think about email. When you get an email from someone that's short, you sometimes almost think, why is it short? Is it short because they don't care? Is it short because they were in a hurry and I wasn't worth their time? You, you're thinking, your brain is trying to process a conversation that you're having over email where if you had had the same conversation with someone in person, you would have never questioned that interaction. And yet many of us, I think, will actually start having even more mental health issues because we're dealing with the deconnection of that extra connectedness. Because we are so deconnected from the actual experience of talking to someone, we're going to actually have more issues because we're trying to rationalize so many things that would have been easily taken care of with the traditional methods of social norms and interaction that humans have had for thousands of years. Anyway, I know this is going to be a really short podcast, but I have been thinking about mental health for a while, and I wanted to put all this stuff down. Um, if you haven't already, please leave a like on iTunes, on SoundCloud. Uh, share this with your friends. Uh, if you can, leave a positive review. Uh, thanks for stopping by. This is one more thing. I'm out.